As you heard, I work with the newspapers. Everything you're about to hear came from Montana, well, no, I take that back. They're not all from Montana newspapers. I did go afield a couple of times. But they are all digitized newspapers. So I am going to take just a second to do a cheerleading for me and what I do um, and make sure that all of you know about it. So how many of you have used one of these two resources? Awesome, yay, okay. Um, so for those of you who didn't raise your hand, um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that a lot of the newspapers that have been used um, by presenters in this whole conference came from one of these two sources. Um, it was very exciting for me. Um, Chronicling America is the national version, and then Montana Newspapers, which I know is very cleverly named, um, is our state repository that we do at the Historical Society. But I did, and I'm really sorry because it did not come out very well on this slide, but on the bottom, I do have statistics for how many pages um, of World War I content there is, and I know you can't read it very well, but just trust me, it's actually pretty high. And then I have, this is just a quick map that is the whole, um, that has every community that we have digitized newspapers for in one of those two. Blue dots are Chronicling America, purple dots are Montana newspapers, but this is where I go into the caution moment. Um, none of these repositories are representative. So there are various ways that, you know, the newspapers get chosen to be in there, but you don't necessarily want to generalize from, you know, you don't want to go, you know, 30% of newspapers said this, so, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean anything in reality. But the newspapers are still awesome regardless. So we are talking World War I. So this is the Roundup record. It's September 27, 1918, and there is a whole lot going on on this front page. You have kind of the obvious, it's, you know, battlefield reporting. You have what's happening to the local boys overseas. You have the Liberty Loan. You have influenza. You have um, the discussions still about who's exempt from the draft and who isn't. You have the slackers who are going to have to, who are being made to do their part. And then because even, or maybe especially during World War I, you need something fun and visual on your front page, we have this French soldier who's being introduced to his first American donut. But one of the real strengths of the newspapers is to take these big national events that we've all heard of and make them personal. You know, who knew that there were this many Montanans on the Lusitania when it was sunk? And it's actually really interesting because um, the Dr. Foss article actually continues and he gives his account of the sinking of the Lusitania. So this is a sentence that I created pretending like I was writing a textbook. And it's war was declared April 6, 1917, and soon after the Selective Service Act was passed requiring all, ma all men aged 21 to 30 to register for the draft. Okay, that is a very factual statement, but it is completely bloodless. <laughs> and the newspapers are really, give you the ways to actually figure out what that meant in reality. So you have this article where he was drafted. He was shipped off to a training camp. 
The very next day, his exemption came through, and now his father is trying to get him back from the army. You have this one. Um, he's a naturalized citizen. He was arrested by federal authorities because his age on his naturalization papers was wrong, and it said that he was 30 when he's actually 33. So he's going to have to defend himself in federal court. But this one, this one is my absolute favorite. So through a lot of this conference, we've been talking about those big ideas, you know, sedition and loyalty and patriotism and all of those issues. And we always, it, it has, there's, there's a tendency when we talk about it to talk about, you know, the German Americans or the Austrian Americans and talking about how they need to be more loyal to the U.S. than to the country that they came from. In this particular story, he has been drafted, um, he's going off into the army, but his father has been with the Hungarian army for two years. And so now we're faced with the proposition that he might end up across enemy lines from his father shooting at him. And if you put it in that context, where it's not necessarily has anything to do with country, it's about the people you knew at home. And it really makes it a lot more personal and really changes the narrative than what we're used to thinking of for World War I. So those are kind of generally what you can find in newspapers. But the Montana Historical Society has been doing numerous um, World War I projects for over a year now. And I'm one of those people who whenever I hear something interesting that's going on, I inevitably go to the newspapers and see what I can find. So I just thought I would pull out some of the um, more interesting searches I've seen and what we find. So as I said, I always go to the newspapers first. And so when I found out I was doing this presentation, I immediately went to find out who my co-presenter was and what exactly they were doing for their topic. <laughs> so I found out that it was venereal diseases, and I immediately went and I did a search for venereal disease. And it was interesting, it had several options, and you pretty quickly um, see in the results that social disease, as Kayla said, is one of the other terms that they use. And so I actually did both searches, and it was really interesting to see what the difference was for when they use venereal versus when they use social. So the venereal diseases had a tendency to be much more, um, well, a focused, but a lot of times if it was statistics or if it was like official announcements, they were using venereal disease, whereas social disease was more <laughs> general kind of, this is something bad that we need to do something about. Or you'd get those articles that had both, in which case social disease had a tendency to be in the headline and venereal disease had a tendency to be in the body. And I'm really sad because I didn't think about it at the time, but um, the link up there, we don't have internet here and I didn't even think about it, um, but it would not have, have done well in an image capture on this screen anyway, so I don't feel too bad about it. But we all know that big data is a thing and you know data analysis data visualizations they're all very big for humanities and history and all of those now and that URL actually goes to a 
data visualization project done by Georgia Tech, and they took all of the Chronicling America data and they put it in. And you can search for any term and it will pop up and it'll do a nice little timeline for you to tell you um, how often the term is used. And so you can see kind of the trends on what it's used. And it'll also pop up um, on a map so you can see where those terms are being used. And it was really cool, and I did it for both venereal disease and social disease, and it was really interesting, and I just did it for 1917 to 1919. And social disease does this nice V shape, and the very middle is 1918. And venereal disease just keeps going up. But if you look at the numbers on the side, um, social disease is always used significantly more than venereal disease. So it's this whole idea of data, which is you know, changing how we, how we think of the world, can be really useful and can kind of highlight you know, anomalies in the data that can then tell you, this is interesting and I should look more at it. But I am not at all going to say that it should ever replace the stories, because the stories is what makes history awesome. Um, and then I picked this article right here, um, firstly because I wanted to make sure that it wasn't something and I wasn't going to be repeating. But it's also interesting after hearing Kayla that, you know, this is September 1918, this last sentence, social diseases are no longer seriously menace the, the effectiveness of the American army. I think we all know that that is uh, unnecessarily uh, optimistic. <laughs> But the other thing that struck me about this article is that this very top one is talking about less than three per thousand on average die from disease, and they're talking about American soldiers. And all I can think of is that this is right when the influenza outbreak is starting. So that's, that's one of those things that you, that you run into with the newspapers or any you know, primary source material. Sometimes you run into it and all you can think of is, oh, you poor people, you have no idea what's coming. Um, but sometimes they say things and you're like, huh, it's like you all are prophets and are just brilliant. So one of, one of the other interesting things that you can do in the newspapers, and this is one of those questions that um, I keep wanting to look at and I still haven't found a great example of, but we all know that the public opinion on the war changed from 1914 to 1917. And so this 1914 article, and I just pulled out part of it, but what I pulled out is basically, if you listen to some of the newspapers, then Germany and all of her allies are terrible people who we need to completely destroy. But, you know, really, we all just need to take a deep breath. We need to not be prejudiced against anybody. We just need to stay out of this war. Like, this has nothing to do with us. By the time we end up in the war, of course, it's completely different. And starting late 1917, 1918, there are a series of articles that I found that are... Um, you know, conversations between Satan and the Kaiser. And this is actually a response to one. Um, the original was that Lucifer was saying that the Kaiser was doing such an amazing job in Europe 
that he was resigning the throne of hell to the Kaiser. And this response is the Kaiser going, no, I think we should just share the throne. You know, that, that'll work better. Um, but of course, there's a later part of that letter that says, and you know, the American army is coming, and if the American army wins, then my life is probably forfeit, so I'll see you in hell soon. Um, but what, to me, was the most interesting about all these letters is that, as far as I can tell, they're not from an official source. Like, they're not part of an actual government um, propaganda campaign. Some of them are very obviously just individual citizens writing them. And so, you know, that really has a huge statement about what public opinion is. With the digitized newspapers, one of the exciting things about it is that now we're finally at the point where we can compare um, how articles are reported in one newspaper compared to another. So we all, well those of us who look at a tremendous amount of newspapers know that there's a lot of shared content across newspapers. The same article will appear in multiple. Some of them so this one is basically the same article, but it has a different headline. And let's face it, Paris applauds Jeanette versus France chivalrously excuses Miss Rankin is a completely different tone. But there are a couple of differences. And the red difference, I'm pretty sure, is just a typo, so I ignore it. But the blue one um, in Philadelphia, it's... Paris, what is it, consoles, oh, excuses, smiles, and consoles, whereas in D.C. it's just excuses and consoles, which is kind of an odd difference considering that the D.C. article is actually more sympathetic. And after thinking about it for a little bit, I, I'm pretty sure that the reason that they cut smiles is because it would have knocked you to that next line, and it's a, it's a size issue. And so sometimes we do have to be careful when we're looking at the newspapers that we're not ascribing an opinion or position when it's really just logistics and space. So we're, we're, we're in my Jeanette Rankin phase. Um, so I wanted to look at how the newspapers were responding to Jeanette Rankin's vote against U.S. entry to World War I. But when I was doing that, I ran across several different accounts of the actual vote. And these are just several of them. And they, it gets described in so many different ways. You have everything from, she never voted at all, because she just couldn't pull it together, um, to she's sobbing, she has to be carried out, like all of those kind of, like, She's a hysterical woman who, you know, isn't fit. Um, but you also have one that I don't think is actually on the slide that says that after she voted, warriors and pacifists alike applaud her. So it's really kind of interesting that you've got these very different versions of the exact same vote. <laughs> and then, of course, the bottom one is actually from Hawaii. And... 
it changes her quote. Like, we all know what she said. But in Hawaii, she said, no matter what stand my country may take in this, I cannot cast my vote for war, which is completely different than wanting to support your country. So it's interesting. And then you have my favorite, which includes a huge storm and melodramatic lightning, which, truthfully, I just can't take seriously. But you have to think that if they're covering her vote that negatively, uh, the reaction to the vote is probably not going to be positive. Um, so all of these basically boil down to she's embarrassing Montana and she, you know, she can't handle it. And a lot of it is because the newspapers are overcome with the desire to phrase her vote in terms of suffrage. You know, these are all different um, articles from various suffrage groups who are trying to distance themselves from her vote. Um, I've run across articles where they're like, you know, her voting no against suffrage is going to set the suffrage movement back 20 years. There's a lot of, well, I was for women's suffrage, but now that she's proved that women can't do it, I'm not for suffrage anymore. You do have a few people who stand up for her. Um, and I really like that top left one because it's one of the very few that I've ever seen whenever they're talking specifically about Jeanette Rankin that points out that 49 men also voted no. So it's kind of hard in that instance to really go, well, it's just because she's a woman. But as a follow-up, and not newspaper related, I took this and then I went to the Jeanette Rankin papers that we have in the archives. And I went through all the correspondence related to the vote. And generally speaking, a lot of the, the um, Correspondence is, of course, a lot more positive. Even the ones who disagree with her applaud her for her moral courage. Um, and then, but, you know, as I said, the newspapers are really focused on the suffrage question, but the correspondence doesn't give a damn. Like, they don't care that she's a woman. They're much more likely to be focused on um, how Montana, or how the U.S., was or was not a neutral power in the up, you know, in the lead up to U.S. entry. Um, they're much more interested in the fact that their that their sons are going to be sent to Europe. You know, it's it's a much more um, eclectic response in the correspondence, and that was especially important to me because I'm so used to focus to focusing on the newspapers that it was really nice to go, oh yeah, there are other things besides the newspapers, and uh, the newspapers have their own agendas. So, one of the most, um, I'm going to go with disturbing things in World War I, are those Liberty Loan and Red Cross ads. Um, in my last public health shout-out, we do have in this Red Cross ad, we must be ready to relieve 
any suffering with scientific care, because now, you know, science is, is, our, is our tool to be used. So that part of this ad is really nice. And, but, you know, you get into this, we were supposed to, to raise this much money. Missoula County, what's wrong with you? We're nowhere close to what we need to be at. This is all your fault. Um, and this is a seriously tame ad. On the other hand, you have this one, and this is actually a Liberty Loan ad. And of course, the title is, what do you mean afford? And of course, afford is in quotes, because in their opinion, everyone is using the, a self-serving definition of the word. The basic gist of this ad, which is an incredible number of words for a Liberty Loan ad, is that you are supposed to give until it hurts and then give more. And there's, there's another, I call it the Scary Liberty Loan ad, and it's out of Columbia Falls. And Martha found it, and it was amazing. Um, the first thing that it does is it tells you all the information that is available to the Liberty Loan Committee. And it is basically all of your financial information. It's how much you make. It's how much your property is worth. It's all sorts of information. And then it goes on to say that based on that information, the Liberty Loan Committee has um, come up with the number, the amount that you are supposed to be giving. But it's not gonna tell you what that amount is. You give whatever you think you should give. And if you don't give at least the amount that's on their magic formula, then as the ad says, it will be dealt with in other ways. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of creepy. <laughs> um, I also sort of think, I, I think I was reading it right around um, the, um, oh, some of those CIA, NSA, uh, wiretapping, information gathering things, and all I can, all I could think of was, wow, government overreach, not a new concept. Um, so I do believe that I am at the end. Oh no, I'm not. I have one more thought for you. So I'm going to leave you with this juxtaposition because to me this is World War One. On the left, you have part of Wilson's speech. On his, in his message to Congress asking for a declaration of war. We have no selfish ends to serve. We desire no conquest, no dominion. We are but one of the champions of the rights of mankind. Very nice, very high-minded. On the right, you have a photo of soldiers who are making tombstones in their free time. And to me, that is World War I.